Hello, I'm Mariette Sneijman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others, with input from wellness experts who sincerely wish to inform, assist and inspire. Today's topic is Discovering Your Power in the Dark, Load Shedding and Other Challenges. My guest is Rudy Swanepoel, pastor and author from Johannesburg. Welcome, Rudy. Thank you, Mariette. It's wonderful to chat to you and your listeners. I'm looking forward to our conversation. <laughs> to our listeners, after our conversation, Rudy will give us his three best tips for general well-being, and then it will be fun question time. Rudy, tell us a little about your career path. <laughs> Mariette, I had an interesting um, entry into full-time ministry. Um, I did part of my theological training at the University of Pretoria, but then there was an interruption. My choice to not complete my studies the sort of conventional way or the conventional path, and I veered off into advertising. So I was a copywriter in the advertising industry for three years, which was incredibly stimulating. It was very challenging, very interesting, obviously very creative. And I, I loved it, but I missed, um, I missed a sort of kind of meaningful, personal impact um, in community with other people. So, yeah, then I decided to complete my theological training. And I started in full-time ministry in 2004. And I haven't regretted that path or the choices I've made. Um, everything has been enriching. Not always easy, but definitely enriching. Yes, and I view you as a wordsmith, and you still work with words all the time. Thank you. I try. <laughs> now, these days, South Africans literally find themselves in the dark, often several times a day. And of course, I'm referring to load shedding. But some listeners from other countries may not know what this is, lucky, those lucky listeners. Could you please throw some light on this phenomenon? <laughs> <laughs> well, firstly, Marie, before I sort of explain what load shedding is to those who may not know, um, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that this is really something that is, it's, it's really difficult and it has bearing on our well-being, it has a direct day-to-day -day impact on our quality of life as South Africans, not only because of inconvenience, but because of the, the disruption, because of the uncertainty that comes with the implications of load shedding. So what is load shedding? Load shedding in our country means, in this country South Africa means, that it's a scheduled or fairly scheduled process of staggering the availability of electricity by the national electricity provider called ESCOM because of a lack of generating capacity. And this problem or this phenomenon started in 2008 um, because of various complicated reasons and I'm definitely not an expert in that area but practically it means at this point in time, which is now end of February 2023, it means, as you said, uh, for several slots per day, we do not have electricity supply from the national electricity supplier. 
And the other implication is also that um, people are currently making all sorts of, can I say, private plans, meaning they, they list dependent on ESCOM, so people install solar panels, those who can, um, or they have generators that uh, generate electricity for those times. The true disruption is in terms of business, I mean, which business does not rely on, on electricity, but, but businesses are not able to uh, run and sustain their enterprises the way they would have wanted it to. And it causes massive, almost a kind of aggression almost, which is understandable, um, because frustration and aggression, all those emotions, which are also deeply human, they are brought on by something, right? And um, so there's a lot of uncertainty. Many businesses have already closed down. So it's not only sort of in the household sense where people now need to light candles or use lamps or rechargeable uh, uh, lights. It's not only on that level. It's sort of a very big and a very difficult and delicate challenge that we have as a country. Yes, so it is. In one of your recent Facebook posts, you mentioned that we may be experiencing load shedding, but not an energy crisis. And this interested me very much. Why did you mean, what did you mean by this? Yeah, Mariet, I think um, sort of initially the idea was almost to play a bit on the two words, where on the one hand there's a power crisis, and um, many people use the word energy crisis to, to describe the power crisis. But if we think for a moment, if we take a step back from electricity, which is, which is power, I mean, it's a form of energy, right? If we take a step back and we say, if we look at humankind and at the people who live in South Africa, then we have not been robbed of our energy. We have energy. I mean, as we are sitting here right now, you consist of a great deal of energy and I consist of a great deal of energy. And it's a mystery. In many ways, it's a mystery. I mean, some of it can be explained. We can look at our heartbeats or the way the blood flows through our bodies and oxygen, etc. But a lot of what we experience is a kind of a mysterious thing. But behind that is the reality of energy. So then I said in that Facebook post that you are referring to, I said, if I look around me, I see people making plans and those plans are all enabled by the energy in the people. If I think of my behavior on the road, I drive out, I dodge a pothole, <laughs> um, the traffic lights are not working because there's load shedding or because they cannot work anymore because of too many power interruptions, there's a power interruption there in the intersection, but the power interruption is not necessarily in me. I'm very much alive. I'm able to express my anger or my frustration. So then I said in that post that um, there is not a shortage of energy in the country, but I sort of insinuated in the post that we don't always channel our energy in, well, sometimes we do, but we don't do it consistently, and I don't think we do it collectively, and I don't think we do it in a way that is really 
conducive to solving some of the most pressing human problems. I often think about the economy and I, I think, well, you know, we tend to think that if there is more money available in certain areas or if less money is sort of abused or not used for certain projects or to address certain problems, we think that money will solve humanity's problems. And I sort of question that. I know we need money and I know countries need money and enterprises need money. But I'm very interested in the human component, which cannot always be fixed or addressed simply by, by allocating more funds or more money towards that particular thing. So I think the, the aim of that post that you're referring to uh, was to say, maybe we must just reconsider the ways in which we are um, spending our energy. Because a lot of our energy as human beings at the moment is spent in anger. And, and it's understandably so. It's completely understandable. So I want to, if you are listening at home, or wherever in your car, wherever you are listening. In the dark, perhaps. In the dark, perhaps. <laughs> on some of your last phone batteries. I do want to acknowledge from my heart to yours, from my soul to yours, I want to acknowledge that this is not easy. What we are experiencing in this sense in South Africa is really not easy. And I'm not making it less than it is, not less of a problem. That's not my intention at all. And I'm also saying this with a very deep awareness that across the globe right now, there's a lot to be concerned about. There are the things that we have in common. The, the climate crisis, we all share that particular concern. The concern about, you know, where the values, our collective values of the world is going. I mean, that's a shared concern. But for your topic today, our topic today, we are concentrating on energy and power. And um, yeah, that was definitely my, my aim to express this reality that we may have a power crisis, an electricity crisis, but maybe we must try and we must take a step back and say, do we really have an energy crisis? Because if I think of the immense potential of human collaboration, then we don't have a, a crisis. We have an opportunity. Mm. And that's the, there's a massive difference between those two things. Yes, I really like that shift in focus. That's why I invited you. Let's talk about energy and individuals, or perhaps the inner power of individuals. Mm. Mariette, so as a pastor, I also believe, um, and I try to encourage people, I try to invite people into the space where they sort of examine their own uh, inner world. I mean, that is what spirituality is. It's to take a step back and say, what is going on inside of me? And it's comprehensive. It's not only sort of in the conventional spiritual sense of the word where I go, you know, what is my relationship with God or am I at peace with God? It's also that, but a huge component. And this was coined by the reformed theologian, John Calvin. Surprisingly, people knock him for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, I think in many circles in our current language, he is cancelled. <laughs> but Calvin said, long before 
there was this sort of modern spirituality or more generic kind of spirituality. Calvin said, you cannot separate your relationship with God from your relationship with yourself. And I'm very interested in the relationship that we all have with ourselves. Now, part of that relationship is the ability to sort of witness yourself, to sort of check your inner thoughts. So, if I leave the property here now and I am confronted with these realities we've already put on the table, what happens to my inner world? Does my energy rise or does it sink? If it rises and it becomes more, is it channeled towards anger or towards letting off steam, which is not, again, not a good or a bad thing, it is what it is, um, but in that process, how does it affect me? Does it, does it inhibit my quality of life? Does it, um, does it make me feel better, perhaps, by letting off steam, or does it make me feel worse? Um, am I directing some of that energy at other people, perhaps in an aggressive way? Am I channeling my energy in a solution-focused way? So when I encounter, for example, a vulnerable person at an intersection, other than sort of judging him or her or trying to understand his position, which I may 90%, I'm 90% sure I won't be able to understand how or why or when he or she ended up in that position. Is it possible for me to redirect my energy and shift it and say, I may not be able to solve your problem, I may not be able to address your predicament, but I can eye to eye, by making eye contact, channel a bit of kind energy towards you. It's not necessary for me to take out my anger at something else on you. Um, and I know this is difficult. I mean, I've just come out of a conversation with a colleague about this particular challenge where churches, for example, are faced with the invitation, or not the invitation, it's an obligation to do good, but often we are confronted with the complexity of, you know, let's call it what it is, codependence. Are we not by giving food to vulnerable people? Are we not simply creating a kind of unhealthy dependence? So, again, to acknowledge how difficult these things are. But your question was about our energy, our inner world, and how we, how we direct that or use it. Um, I think a, a large part of a more productive way of using our energy lies in awareness, in, in a kind of a self-governing check. Uh, where am I at now? What is, the, what is the impact of this particular feeling or thought on my life? One of my favorite passages in the Bible, and I do respect and honor other religious sources too, but one of my favorite passages in the Bible is from Proverbs 4.23, where God says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And that in itself is a, an indication of the energy that is locked up in all of us. There is power there. And we don't always realize that. 
and we don't always use it for the good and we don't always harness that power collectively and collaboratively. What are your thoughts on group energy? I think it's one of the most underutilized areas in terms of, I, I think I started referring to that when I spoke about collaboration and uh, sort of pulling our energy together. Let me start with a fear, if I may. And, and if I say a fear, it's more a concern than an actual fear. If we look at the way we live now, we live a very sort of, most people live a very sort of individualized life. I can customize so many things from my phone's lock screen and home screen to the sounds my phone makes. Um, there, there are so many things that we can customize or individualize that I think one of the effects of that is that we are sort of in many ways living in silos at the moment. And a lot has been said and written about that, that we live these sort of siloed existence. We live almost isolated. And that is a point of concern for me because what we, one of the things we are missing when we do only that, I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, or it's not healthy to do that, it's, it's the way we live now. But one of the things we miss out on is the power of collaboration. Because also, not only as South Africans, I think as citizens of the globe, in most parts of the globe, I think, at least the West, we have become, not victim to, but we have become captives of this idea that it's good to do everything on your own. We value independence greatly and we, we applaud people who are sort of self-made successes. I mean, if your podcast, not if, when, it reaches millions of listeners, people will say, Mariette, well done, you know, you're a self-made woman. We applaud individualized success and in the process we miss out on collective success. And there are also obviously many reasons for that. One of the reasons is that we, we have not done and we are not doing the ego work. We are not sort of um, asking, why am I so afraid for somebody else's success? Why am I so reluctant to work with somebody, to, uh, to work towards a greater goal than just my own success or my own fame, whatever it may be? So, to get back to the point, I think we are missing out on addressing big problems and some of our big issues as societies and countries and communities because we do not tap into that group energy. We are afraid in some ways to go to that place and I think one of the reasons is that we've seen how damaging group energy can be. If we think about, um, you know, post-World War I Europe, where a strong leader arrives in the person of the German leader of the time, and he is this enthusiastic, energetic speaker, and he harnesses the collective energy of a large group of people, and he creates this enemy, and he dehumanizes in that ideology um, a large, a massive group of people is dehumanized based on 
certain ideas, certain beliefs, but also on the collective energy of a group that is harnessed by this one eloquent leader. I think one of the reasons why we are afraid or skeptical about group energy is because it can be applied in a life-denying way, in a way that says, well, this group is valued more than another group. This group uh, is above another group. And we know what the effect of that was. So um, there's an un unutilized resource at our disposal that we are not making use of. And also, if I think of uh, a few people who are writing about this at the moment, I mean, there's an Oxford philosopher, a young chap by the name of William McGaskill. He's writing about this and he says, if we really want to address the big global challenges, we have to tap into that collaborative solution making or creating solutions collaboratively and not as silos. So that excites me and that does give me hope for, for now and perhaps for time to come. Before I move on to the next question, when you talk about groups, do you refer to both small groups and large groups? Yes, Mariette, most definitely. If I refer to groups, I mean from small groups to larger groups, because I cannot talk about groups and not think about exponential sort of exposure. So if you and I are a group and we are only two, we have the potential to go and influence at least two more people, even more than that. And those people who are influenced by our thinking or our behavior are then able to influence even more. So, so to answer your question, most definitely, I'm talking about small groups, I'm talking about families, I'm talking about schools, I'm talking about faith communities, I'm talking about any kind of group that can gather for whatever reason or have a collective, a shared interest. It can be any kind of group for that matter. Thank you, Rudy. And now I'd like to know how can group energy act as a benevolent force in the world? Well, if we talk about a benevolent force, we have to first talk about ideas. All the big changes for good in, let's say, the history of the West, all big changes that came about in terms of governments or societies or countries, um, all the, the sort of bodies that are responsible for the well-being of more than just one person or one individual, all those changes came about based on an idea or a group of, or a collection of ideas, ideas that said, well, maybe it's not good for some people to have more freedom than others. If we think about the, the abolitionist movement in, in the US, the abolishing of slavery, somebody, not somebody, several people said, it cannot be that this person has the right to buy another person because our intrinsic worth as human beings is the same. You cannot put a, a monetary price on the head of a human being. We are not commodities. We don't work that way. It's not the way we thrive. So without ideas, we cannot go to a place to say, how can we um, harness the power of group energy for the good? But we have examples. 
from recent history and not so recent history. And in theory, at least, we should be able to repeat those patterns to harness group energy for the greater good, for benevolent tasks or projects or so-called change that needs to come about. I think one of the reasons why that does not happen is because we do not buy into ideas. But then a counter argument may be, but we need leaders. We need a kind of leadership to sort of spearhead those movements. Then I look around me and I look, and I don't want to, obviously I'm not going to mention names now. Um, if I look at some of the, 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 the organizations or the projects that do sort of tap into that group energy in order to achieve a benevolent outcome, then I sometimes say, well, this does not have everybody's well-being at heart. It, it advocates for, for one group. And then it's a debate. Obviously, it, it, it needs some careful argumentation and debate to, to, to think whether there can be a benevolent project or initiative or institution that has the well-being of all people at, at heart. Because that's the way I understand uh, benevolence. And it's linked to my own personal spirituality. Uh, you know, I cannot really be involved, at least in theory, in a project or a, a faith community or an initiative that has only a certain group's interests at heart. I know that in practice it's be it becomes very complicated and difficult. That's why I make the distinction. But I do think that we need um, strong ideas, and we have them already. They are there, but I don't think we, we value them enough. And this is also a source of my own concern for our time, that we, we have started to value the wrong things. We, we are valuing things that do not allow life or well-being for everybody, and I'm including the planet. I'm including all creatures. I'm including the well-being of our planet as well, because, because to me that's part of what benevolence is. I mean, it, it, it links back to the sort of intention perhaps at the beginning, where we, we live in harmony and we, we don't sort of compete so strongly for, for everything. But uh, we tend to live with the scarcity mentality. We tend to live with competition in mind, you know. So I need to steal some of your things or, or people in order to, to make a success of my own. That is not true. That's not the way uh, the world was, was made. There's another option, there's another alternative. And it's not driven by fear, it's driven by love. Would you say that, that one could have, one could believe that what one does should benefit everyone, that that should be the principle, but then you can focus your efforts on a specific group? Of course. Because of that is course. what mostly happens, doesn't I isn't think it? so, yes, I think so. But I think part of my sort of perpetual frustration almost is that we're not doing enough. I mean, I am with you on that one. You know, I, I see so many people 
um, sort of doing their bit, so to speak, trying to make a difference where they go. And, and that's amazing. And so I'm not saying we don't need that. I'm saying we need that and mm. more. Mm. We need that and greater effort. Ideas that bind us together on greater scales than just, you know, um, the Afrikaans, there's an old sort of church song that, that went, Jij en jou klein hoekie in ek en mijn. You in your little corner and I in mine. That is part of my concern at the moment, that in this sort of siloed existence, we think that the little bit that I do is, is enough, and, and maybe it is enough, I don't want to go to the place where I judge whether it is valid or useful or not useful, whatever it may be. But I think we are missing out on some of the change we need in the world as citizens of the globe right now because we do not harness enough power, especially around ideas that will benefit more people. And I'm talking about, perhaps indirectly, I am talking about ideas pertaining to the economy, for example. If you think about, if we think about socialism or communism or capitalism, I mean, behind all those ideologies and ways of doing things, behind all of those things are ideas. It didn't start from the ground up. It started from an idea that informed practice and behavior and systems, whatever those systems were or are. So that's what I'm talking about. Yes, and I, I appreciate the fact that you get back to the siloed existence. Because I think it is so obvious when one is amongst people and you look around you and you see that specific tilt of the head which is focused on the small screen in their hand. And everybody has their own screen. So what I'm thinking now is that when you talk about the ideas that will spur us on to action, that will not only benefit others. So it doesn't become a self-sacrificial sort of action. It also benefits us because we are, totally. we, we are wired to function in groups, aren't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, if I talk about those ideas or values, it's the things that make us thrive. It is recognition. But, but now, again, it, it's, it's complicated because if I make a Facebook post or an Instagram post that gets a lot of likes, I am being recognized and I get recognition. And that's fine and good and well and okay. But what about the actual human recognition? What about embodied recognition? What about the recognition that, that sort of is a bit like electricity from soul to soul? person to person. I mean, we all know, all of us, despite the kind of silo that we are living in, we all know what that moment of recognition feels like. It can be between romantic partners, between parents and children, between colleagues even. But the point is that we thrive on actual embodied human recognition. And we thrive in community. But the problem with uh, let's call it um, extreme customization, where I'm able to customize so many of my interactions. The problem is I only opt for the comfortable ones and the pleasant ones. We need the, the more unpleasant ones too. 
I sometimes need to hear an uncomfortable truth about myself. I need to hear from my family members. You have just spoken in a way that made us feel a bit, you know, uncomfortable. What is that? What is that? I need to see my own image in a mirror, not my own mirror, because then I will only see what I want to see. I need to see myself through the eyes of other people. And that can only happen in embodied community. A community that I do not choose. I often say in our faith community that one of the very uncomfortable, unintended benefits that you will experience if you live in a faith community with other people. One of those consequences is brought about by the fact that you cannot choose who you are with. True. I can choose my friends. To a degree, I can choose, you know, many, well, most of my interactions on a daily basis. But if I walk through the door of a public place of worship, I cannot choose who I'm with. I can say, well, this person I like a bit less. But in the confrontation with the other, there is, there is growth. I'm taken out of my comfort zone. And we know that growth only happens on the edge or outside of our comfort zone. If I choose to stay in my bubble, I will most likely not grow. And in terms of your remark, your question, there's a lot that happens in actual interaction, human to human embodied interaction that does not happen in virtual interaction. And I mean, in the time we are now, we need to think about this. We need to think about um, AI and the virtual, the, the growing virtual world that, that has, I mean, where are the limits? We don't know. But we need to think about humanity's almost functioning within, I cannot even say that world, I need to say this world, because it's here. It's here already. You touched on parents and children and families. I would like to know how parents can exercise their inner power to empower their children. I'm going to take it back to love. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about this from an academic or a theoretical perspective. I'm talking as a parent of children myself. So many of our interactions can be more healthy or better if we address the quality of our energy first, before we try to channel or guide or direct our energy towards our children. So, if you think about uh, when last did you fly, if you think about an airplane and the safety instructions, the, the, the air hostess or host or cabin attendant, that's the word I was looking for, the cabin attendant stands there and demonstrates to you how you need to give yourself oxygen first before helping other people. And in many religious traditions, especially in parts of the Christian tradition, we don't have a very healthy way of thinking about that. You mentioned self-sacrificial behavior just now. So we tend to think, you know, I must care for my child first and I must just tend to their every need and I must just make sure that they are not rebellious or upset or, or whatever they may be. But in terms of the quality of our energy, 
we need to start with a healthy form of self-love. And I'm going to talk from a male perspective quickly. Many males do not have the language to express their energy in a variety of, of ways. We have been conditioned, our gender conditioning says, it's okay for a man to be angry or aggressive. Sometimes, at a push, you can be sad. But often, we suffer, as men we suffer, because we do not have enough vocabulary to express our emotion. And emotion is energy. Emotion is energy. So, I can be melancholic. I can be frustrated. I can be uncertain. I can be... I can feel threatened. There are so many emotions that we can identify that can lead us to a more healthy place. But to get back to love, I need to, as a parent, try my utmost to live in a healthy relationship with myself. I need to love myself in a good and healthy way. Then I have a life-affirming energy inside of me and then I can transfer that energy to my, my children. That we need to see ourselves. I need to be able to look in the mirror once again and say, I see somebody with X, Y and Z abilities and K, L and M lacks or lack of ability. I can celebrate in myself A, B and C, but E, F and G, I'm, I, I know this needs more care and more attention. And if I can see myself and do it in a non-threatened way, I can then see my child in, an, in a non-threatened way. My child's behavior, if it's, if it's less acceptable behavior, is not a reflection of their true being. It is a response to their world. It is a reaction on what they are given. It may be even part of their personality, but it doesn't mean that it cannot be redirected or channeled in another direction. So I must be able to see myself, I think. I think that's a healthy place to be. And then it makes me more likely to see my child. And remember, our children, that is one of their most basic needs. They want to be seen. They don't want to, they, obviously they, they communicate to us a variety of needs and things. But one of the most basic things that, that is often communicated in a sort of lopsided, you know, very clumsy way. Dad, please just see me. Please just, please just see me. And not acknowledge me in a brief way. I mean, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, our parents, they still read newspapers. I remember how I wanted my dad to just look up from his newspaper, not in a sort of, you know, I'll wave at you in passing, but I wanted attention. I wanted a conversation. I wanted his, his energy. 
I, I wanted his wisdom. I wanted his story. Above all, I wanted his story. And we don't always take the time to share those truly important things. So that when I share something like my story, I'm physically, literally, scientifically giving my child energy. I'm giving them life. That's beautifully said. Now that was regarding parents in general. Do you have a special word for the parents of teenagers or young adults? <laughs> sure. <laughs> that is the difficult question. It is the difficult question. I have a specific word. Show them that no matter what, you will not stop loving them. Because that is what teenagers and young adults need to do in their life stage. They need to test the boundary, the extent of your love. Because by this stage, if you are the parent of a teenager or a young adult, you've already told them numerous times that I've, I love you unconditionally. It's time for them to test whether that is true. And that is where um, it is really difficult because the behavior that we are confronted with, and you will hear that I'm including myself, the behavior that we are confronted with is, is not easy. It is challenging. It, it, it sort of invites you to react in a certain way. Um, the, one of the things from a psychological perspective that, uh, that helps me is the ability to give my child a reality check without being aggressive or unkind. I can tell them, right, so while that is going on in your life and I validate that and I see that and I acknowledge that, I also want to tell you what's going on in my life. To leave the, the house in the morning is a challenge for me. It's not easy for me. I'm confronted with my own set of challenges and problems. And I'm not saying to you, when I share that, I'm not saying that my problems are bigger than yours. I'm saying your reality is valid, my reality is also valid, and they are not separate. They have, they, they touch, and sometimes they overlap. So, so in a conversation like that, I, I, in my mind, I don't, I don't say to my child, I'm having a reality check conversation with you. I say it in my mind. I want to share with you my reality, and it does not mean that yours is not valid, or cancelled, or seen, or understood, but it means that I have a certain experience of life too. And they may, those realities may touch and sometimes they overlap. And I'm not conflating it. I'm not making it one thing, one big pot of soup and stirring it around and saying, well, let's just deal with this mess. I'll do my best to understand and acknowledge your reality. And I want you, I'm inviting you to also see something of my own reality. I think that's one of the things that parents do. We, we do it naturally. We want to shield our children from our realities. We don't want to um, expose them to our difficulties or our struggles. And I'm not saying we should do that, spill our guts. That's not what I'm saying. 
there's obviously there's room for um, the more sensitive and the more private and the more delicate things to not be shared. But it doesn't harm anybody to share a bit more about my current reality and invite you to do the same and, and validate both. What I hear you saying is that self-reflection is very important. Definitely. And that if it can be done in love, which I'm sure is something we all need to learn and relearn, then that, that can extend to those with whom we are in connection, Absolutely. which includes our children. Absolutely. Thank Absolutely. you, Rudy. Where can people learn more about your work? <laughs> well, um, I, I have a, a Facebook account that is that still has a bit of capacity. So my name is Rudy Swanepoel. My profile pic is, is recognizable. On Instagram, I'm Rude Swan, R-U-D-E-S-W-A-N. Rude. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is sort of a, a joke, obviously. But at school, one of my many nicknames was Rude. So people, people called me, or Rudes. Uh, many people still call me that. So it's R-U-D-E-S-W-A-N on Instagram. Um, I'm not on Twitter anymore. But yeah, Instagram may be the, the easiest way. Or Facebook for that matter. I want to mention that you've recently recorded an Afrikaans TV series for VIA with your good friend Ivor Schwartz. That's Could right. you tell us a little more? Yes, gladly. I'm so excited about this. I'm starting on uh, Thursday, this Thursday the 23rd of February, or Thursday the 23rd of February on VIA. It's channel 147 on DSTV at 6pm. I'll, I'll say more about the availability of those episodes later on. But the series is called Ons for Yo, and the intention is to, was to invite a variety of South Africans across a massive spectrum of experiences and stories. We have 14 guests in total, and um, they, they represent, in each episode, they represent a particular angle, a particular story, um, almost what it means to be a South African. Much like our conversation today, you know, um, what are the things that give us hope? How do we deal with the way we are living right now? So yeah, after each episode is broadcast, there are reruns of that episode, and then it's also available on Catch Up or whatever the service is where you can watch it later on. So Ivor and I both, he is on Instagram, his Instagram handle is Ivor Dean, I-V-O-R-D-E-A-N, Ivor Dean, if people want to follow him as well, because we post about these topics. And the series was born from our friendship. I'm a white South African, he's a brown South African. We have different experiences and perspectives, and we thought it might be a good idea to share those perspectives and do it bravely and honestly and learn from each other in the process. I'll include some of the links in the podcast notes. Now we're coming to your three tips for general well-being. Um, yeah, I, I live by this. The one, the first one is a new habit. Uh, new meaning it's about 14 months old. And I can say that over the course of 14 months, 
I've done it every day with the exception of about six days. And that is to end my morning shower. I'm privileged, I'm very fortunate to be able to have running water at home and most of the time hot water. But I end my shower with a cold bit. Alright, so it's, it's a very, pop, not popular, but it's a, it's a hot topic at the moment, cold immersion. So I don't have a, you know, an ice bath or something, but I end my morning shower with a 30 to 40 second cold section, ice cold. I did it throughout winter last year. Goodness. Yeah, and it sounds too difficult, but it's possible. My wife, the clever physiotherapist, explained to me that the reflex the response to the cold water cannot go away. It's physically impossible, but the mindset changes. So I do this and I tell myself it's okay. I don't need to flee from this. It's okay. So I stand there for 30 seconds and I go, it's okay. I can't do this. I don't need to flee from this. And you don't cringe anymore. No, I don't. I fold my arms and I stand there and I count. Eyes closed and I say, it's okay, 7, 8, 9, it's okay, <laughs> 11, 12, 13, 230 or 35 or 40. My second tip is eat mindfully. It's possible to eat mindfully at every single meal. And it, 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 obviously there's a spectrum of mindful eating. You can, on the one end of the spectrum, you can go, well, the salad, the lettuce had to die. <laughs> <laughs> in order for me to eat it, the, if, I, if I'm a meat-eating person, the, the animal had to die for me to eat it. Or it can be more basic, more simple, where I just take a moment to be thankful that I am able to eat this meal. I can notice what is on my plate. I can appreciate the colors. Again, uh, my wife is very serious about range and color on the plate so I can take it in I can involve more than just one or two senses I can even touch my food before I eat it um, so eat mindfully tip one cold shower partly uh, tip two eat mindfully and if you are a really religious person or you have a particular religious conviction obviously it's a moment to say thank you it's a moment to, to, to express gratitude. And my third tip for general well-being, especially in relationship, is to say it. Say it, meaning say the good thing. Say the beautiful thing. Say what you see in the other person. Say, you know, what you need to say. Say it. Um, there is a lot of life locked up in our words and it, it's something again that we underestimate say it so my third tip is to say it first one cold shower second eat mindfully third one say it thank you rudy can i ask you your fun question yeah i'm very curious to know what this is going to be you're a runner aren't you i am <laughs> Now we're going to the world of the imagination, and this is where you're going to get your fun question. You needn't be practical. If you could be a character in an animation series where anything is possible, now this is really, literally anything, and your character loved running, where would you be running? 
Mm. Oh my goodness, it is indeed a fun question. So I'm going to combine. Um, yeah, no, let me not combine. Let me let me just run in one place. I want to run on an island. I don't know where this island is, but I'm choosing an island because there's a lot of oxygen, because it's on sea level. There's oxygen, and I want to run far. I don't, I don't mind, you know, running something between 10 and 30 kilometers. Um, so I can go round and round, I don't mind, but I have two uh, prerequisites. The one is there has to be fresh drinking water. I'm assuming there will be fish or food from this from the ocean and I want to include um, the running um, in a sort of a week trip with my wife. Does she run as well? She does. Oh, so she has no choice, she will simply have to come along to this island. I hope she will agree to come mm. to this island with me. That's a lovely flight of the imagination. Thank you, Rudy. Today we started with load shedding, which as you said is, is you know, I just sometimes think that this can't be happening, mm. and which is rather a dark subject. Mm. But thank you for injecting this conversation with the energy that I think is, is the thing that we need to focus on and the thing that will bring about so much change. And give us a much higher life quality. So thank you. It's only a pleasure. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe to this podcast series and rate it where you download your podcasts. Finally, if you found this episode helpful, please share it with someone you care about. Visit my website www.mariehitsneiman.co.za for this episode's show notes and for free articles and podcast episodes on love relationships, parenting, life's challenges and emotional health. To follow me on Facebook, just search for Mariette Sneiman Journalist. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me and the music is by Mark Marie Sneiman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9. <laughs>